I'm here to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 John. And if you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers are already coming down the aisle. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. We're going to chapter 3 of 1 John, this amazing letter that we've been studying. I hope you've been blessed by this series. I know that I have. It's Mother's Day, okay? So happy Mother's Day, everybody. And this morning, in honor of moms everywhere, and especially moms in here, I'm going to talk to you today about why the Bible uses the metaphor of a birth to describe what happens to a person when they become a Christian. A birth. Happy Mother's Day, right? Why does the Bible choose that metaphor? In the Christian faith, we call it the new birth or being born again. The, the big theological word is the word regeneration. And it's this very graphic, very sweeping expression of that change that happens in a person when that person goes from a place of not having faith in Jesus to a place of having faith in Jesus. The metaphor the Bible uses is the metaphor of a of a birth, a new spiritual birth. Amazing. Why? Why a birth? Here's how it works. If you combine these three things, if you combine pure love with the miracle of new life, and you add to that some immense suffering, you have all the ingredients you need for a birth. Right, moms? Can I get an amen? Moms, holler. Amen. Immense suffering. I've never seen so much suffering as that moment as Kathy was delivering Lauren, our first baby, Lauren Audrey. And I looked at Kathy and she was laboring and writhing and suffering. And I thought, this is, I would die. Men do not have the pain threshold needed for this, right? And I'm watching her and here's what happened. I'm watching her writhing and struggling and suffering and laboring. And I made a critical error, okay, in this moment. Young guys, pay attention. Learn from my failure. If I could go back and talk to myself, I would. Here's what I did in that moment, okay? I spoke, and that was a mistake. <laughs> I said something, all right? And here's what I said. I said, you know, baby, maybe if you just didn't move around so much, <laughs> that wouldn't hurt. I know. What was I thinking? And here's what happened. As Kathy's hands started to squeeze around my neck, it dawned on me, that was not the wisest thing to do in that moment. And then she looked at me and she said, maybe if you don't move around so much. No, that's not what she said. She said, do not talk to me. Do not talk to me. <laughs> Yesterday we were reflecting and she was like, you know, when we had Bridget, you were a lot better. You did not say a word. Good job, dude. Good job. Here's what happened. She suffered. She struggled. And then the miracle happened. The miracle of life, Lauren was born. Precious Lauren, there she is. She didn't come out like that, by the way. That's later. She didn't come out fully clothed, of course, but <laughs> Lauren Audrey. You know, she graduates from high school in three weeks. I can't believe it. Miracle, the, the miracle of life. And you know it's a miracle, moms, when you're in that moment. You're like, what I'm experiencing is a miracle. And then you add to that pure love. I watched as they laid Lauren on Kathy's chest and tears started to well in Kathy's eyes. And she looked at Lauren and it was just this 
100% pure love. Amazing. You can take that down. You take suffering, you take love, the purest love you can think of, and you take the miracle of new life and you put that together. And now you're beginning to understand why God would choose the metaphor of birth to describe what happens when you become a Christian. Think of it. The suffering wrought redemption that Jesus purchased through his death and resurrection that creates new spiritual life, a miracle inside of the hearts of individual people. And, the, and it flows out of this love of God, this 100% pure love. And now you're beginning to understand why God would choose this metaphor. Amen? Isn't it beautiful? You know that of all the New Testament writers, John uses the metaphor of birth more than any of them. He loves this metaphor. Shows up in his gospel account. It shows up in this letter over 10 times. The passage we'll look up look at this morning, the new birth is the theme. Isn't it amazing that in the providence of God on Mother's Day, we come to a passage that's all about the new birth? Will you look at it with me today? 1 John chapter 3. We're actually going to start in the verse right before the last verse of chapter 2, verse 29. John's going to take this idea of birth, the new birth, and he's going to use it to encourage Christians how to follow God in a fallen world. He wants to remind you this morning, this is, this is essential to your identity as a Christ follower. We read with me. I'm going to read kind of a long passage today, which is a little risky in a 144-character culture. It's a little risky to read long passages, but we need to see the whole argument at once. So listen, let the word of God wash over you. Here's what John says, starting in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There it is. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There it is. The theme is clear. Born of God, John begins with it and he ends with it. But then along the way, he says a bunch of other really complex things. I mean, there is a lot going on in this passage. How are we going to untie all of this? 
How are we going to make sense of John's argument? When you're studying the Bible, one of the ways to figure out the main point of a text is to look for the imperative verbs, which are like the commands. Anytime a writer commands something that's getting close to their primary point. And in this passage, there's only two commands, two of them. The first one is in chapter three, verse one, when you look at your Bible, it's that word see, the first word in the sentence where he says, see what kind of love the father has given us. John's like, he's, he's commanding the church. He's exhorting them. Behold, take this in. It's amazing. See it. And then the second command shows up down in verse Seven And this command is a little bit different. It's a warning. Where he says, little children, verse 7, don't let anyone deceive you. Do not let anyone deceive you. And he says, don't be deceived about how important righteousness is. We're going to unpack that verse in a minute. So command number one is, it's a positive command. Take in the love of God. Command number two is more like a warning. It has a different tone. But both of them are going to get us to the critical nature of the new birth. Both of them are going to help you understand how important it is that this has happened in your heart and in your life. And maybe along the way, some here today will discover maybe this hasn't happened in my life. And maybe this would be your day, which would be Wonderful. So we're going to take each of these two commands and we're going to unpack them a little bit. And then at the end, I'm going to share some practical suggestions. But look again at command number one, verse one, chapter three. If you notice, John had talked about the new birth in the last statement of chapter two, when he says being born of him. And I think it stirs him up to reflect on the love of God. So he writes, see what kind of love the father has given us. John says, take it in. Behold, it's so marvelous. It's so wonderful. That phrase, what kind of love, we talked about this when we launched our series in John. It's a figure of speech that means from what country. John is thinking about the love of God and it's so wonderful. He wonders, where is this from? It feels foreign. It feels otherworldly. From what country does this love come from? And John says, take it in. Take in the wonder of it. And then you say, well, where would I look to see evidence of the love of God? John says, here's where you look. You look at your birth. You look at your spiritual birth. If you want to understand how much God loves you, John says, you got to make the connection. Look at what happened to you when you were born again. That is the evidence that you need to understand how deeply God loves you. John says, make that connection. Because John knows something, something critical. He knows if you don't come to terms with the wonder of what's happened in your heart when you were born again, you're never going to appreciate how much God loves you. You never will. When a woman gives birth to a baby, we call it a labor of love, right? There's love there even though it's costly. Imagine if you could go back in time and be in the hospital room when you were born. You're thinking, pastor's getting really weird right now. This is getting strange. But now think about this for a minute. Imagine if you could go back in time and stand in the room, be a fly on the wall and watch your mom labor 
to give birth to you. And you see her struggle and you see her cry and you see her fight. And then there's that moment and you see yourself come out of the womb and, and you see yourself being laid on her chest as she weeps. You would never wonder how much she loved you. And John says, so it is with God. Make the connection. Think about this for a minute. What has happened in your life, your birth? John says, now do you understand how deeply God loves you? Amazing, powerful. What a gift. Well, what John does is he says, there's, there's kind of two implications of this that are really important. The first implication, John says, the new birth explains why you and I look so weird to the world around us. That's what he says here at the end of verse two. And he says, the reason why the, or verse one, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Jesus. John says, when you're born again, you start to take on the family likeness. You start to take on the characteristics of God. You start to look like Jesus. And the reality is Jesus was rejected by the world. The world did not know Jesus. The world did not understand or appreciate Jesus. Jesus didn't fit in. And John says, when you're born again and you start to look like Jesus, the reality is you're not going to fit in either. And that's okay. That's a, I want to drive this home as a pastor because sometimes I think people experience this shock of realizing I'm, I feel less and less at home in this world. And John would say, well, then that, that's exactly what your leader experienced. Isn't that great? You start looking like Jesus because of your new birth. You'll start to not fit in. And that's okay. Don't even try. So then John says, he says also the new birth explains why our conduct in this world matters so much. In fact, this is his driving agenda. Will you look at it starting in verse 2, chapter 3? He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is really interesting. John says, right now we're children. It's the result of the new birth. But John says that, that new birth is just, it's just the beginning of a life of transformation. And there's going to come a day when this life ends that you will stand before Jesus, your creator. And John says, well, you know what will happen in that moment? The moment that you see Jesus when this life ends, you will immediately be changed. And you will become like Jesus. Something about that moment, seeing Christ face to face, will change every one of us instantly. Incredible. And that, John says, that, that's your motivation for how you live in the now. That is your fundamental identity. You will become perfectly like Jesus. And John says, that's who you really are now. Live that way in the here and now. In April, just this last month, we said goodbye to one of our own, a saint of our church. Her name was Claren Steiner. Claren was an amazing woman of faith and she died way too early. She lost a really brutal fight to cancer. She was 58 when she passed. And Claren was an incredible woman of faith, just a passionate faith. But in the last weeks and months of her life, her struggle was 
almost painful to watch. The cancer was just destroying her body. But you know what happened? The moment Claren took her last breath, she was instantly holding Jesus' hand. And in that moment, the cancer was gone. The frail body, the broken body, the illness, the weakness, the tears, the sorrow, all of the results of a broken, fallen world wiped away for eternity, right? Not only that, sin. Claren will never sin again for all of eternity. Isn't that amazing? And John says, that is your true identity. Keep focusing on that. It'll give you hope in this world now as you try to practice righteousness. Amazing, beautiful. So John says, take this in. Behold the love of God. It will inspire you. But then John says, I also need to warn you though. Command number one is encouraging. Command number two becomes sort of a warning. Will you look at it? Verse seven, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Or in other words, you could say it like this. John says, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived about the true nature of sin and of righteousness. Don't be deceived about this. This is really important. Apparently, if there's a place in Christian faith where there's, the, where there's a lot of possibility for people to be confused or deceived, it's whenever we start talking about sin. It was even confusing for the, the church in John's day, which is why he wrote. Many people believe that the false teachers that Pastor Guy talked about last week were, were, were saying things about sin that were totally false. They, they were probably saying something like, we know God, we've been born again, but then there was no evidence of righteousness in their lives. They just sinned with abandon, right? And so John says, it's easy to get deceived about sin. We don't like to talk about sin. You know what was weird at the 9 a.m. service right at this moment in the sermon? Like 15 people started coughing. It was like, oh, sin. (laughs) People were uncomfortable. Thank you for being so polite, by the way. I appreciate it. It's weird. We don't like to talk about it. But Sean says, you've got to talk about this. This is critical. And so he writes to clear things up. But here's the problem. The problem is that what John says next is it can actually be a little bit confusing. Will you look at it? Verse nine. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now here's the thing. When you read that at face value, What it sounds like John is saying is a person who's been born again, they no longer struggle with sin. Sin does not become a a part of the practice of their life. And the problem with that is that if you remember earlier in John, John almost seemed to say something exactly the opposite. So let me show you. Keep your finger in chapter 3 and turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. 
And you remember this, you probably, as we read over it, you thought, I'm really thankful that John says what he says in chapter one. Because in chapter one, John says, verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So in chapter one, John says, if you're claiming that you're not, that you don't sin, you're actually a liar. And he says, you should actually confess your sins. And then in, in one verse later, he says, if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus. We talked about that. But then you get to chapter three, and John now says, if you've been born of God, if you've been born of God, you no longer make a practice of sinning. So which is it, John? How do we, how do we reconcile this? Well, the key is right here in verse four. Will you look at it? And a really important word. It's the word lawlessness. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does that mean? John seems to be saying that the kind of sin that a, that's impossible for a person who's been born of God is a, is a sin that he calls lawlessness. The Greek word is anomia. And it shows up all over the New Testament. And every time it shows up, it's always describing something very deep. A heart level disposition, like a spiritual condition of the heart. It's not about the individual deeds that you do. It's, it's about the basic disposition of your heart that is the cause of those deeds. When a person is marked by lawlessness, it means that they have a heart level, almost like a defiance towards God. A rebellious spirit. There's, a, there's this defiance that says, God, I, I, I feel defiant towards your word, towards your law, toward, toward, towards your ways. Moms, you know that moment when your child, when the sin nature blooms in your child, right? And they go from being a precious angel and then you see defiance. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, where did this come from, right? This is crazy. I thought my child was not gonna sin at all, but no, apparently not. And here they come and then and it's this, just this defiance towards you, right? One time when Bridget was really small, she could just barely talked. She was starting to put sentences together and we had to send her to a room for timeout. And I was like, Bridget, you gotta go to your room, timeout. And she looked at me with a look I had never seen before, you know? I'm still traumatized to this day by it. And she looked at me as if to say, I rebel against your ways, you know? And then as, what, as, we, as she walked up the steps, we could hear her from the kitchen and we tried not to laugh because the only sentence she could muster was, daddy poopy head. And then she walked up to her room. <laughs> Defiance, right? Lawlessness. And John says, this is actually really important because I want to get you to the nerve center of sin. Sin, capital S. If you want to understand it, here's what it is. It's rebellion. It's this posture of the heart that says, God, I, don't, I, I resent your claim of authority over my life. 
I don't want to follow your ways. I don't love your word. I don't love your law. And John says, that's, it's, sort of like a, it's sort of like a cosmic authority problem, <laughs> you know? That's sin. It's like a cosmic authority problem. A couple of years ago, I was reading um, some books on philosophy and science, and I came across an, um, an author named Thomas Nagel. He, he's an unbeliever. I don't know if he calls himself an atheist or an agnostic, but I really appreciate how he writes. And one of, one of the things that's great about him is he's very honest about his disbelief. He'll be very honest, like, this is why I don't believe in God. Here's one passage that he wrote. I'll put it on the screen so you can read along as I read it here. He says, I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition, that it's responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. But he nails it. It's an authority problem. That is the root of sin. Sin is defiance. And here's why this matters. River West, John, what John is saying is he's saying, at the moment that you're born again, the very first thing that, that changes, the very first thing that's taken away is defiance. And it's replaced by something new. Something so basic, it's like your whole disposition changes. And God implants his seed of life. Did you see that? When you look at your Bible, every word matters. Verse 9, you know when you're born again, God's seed abides in you. It's kind of a graphic metaphor. The, the seed is, is, the, is the, the source of life. It's a source of spiritual life and power. And John is saying, the reason that you change, the reason your disposition changes is that God actually implants within you spiritual power. It's almost certainly talking about the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you go through a fundamental change at your basic disposition where you no longer want to rebel against God. And suddenly you find that you love God. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and they tell their story of conversion and they say, I'm not even sure how it happened. I just know that one moment I didn't want to follow God and the next moment I realized I love God. Amazing. How about you? Here's how Ezekiel said it. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, he said, this is God promising the people, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That sounds a lot like 1 John and Ezekiel saying, what does God do? He takes away that heart of stone, that rebelliousness, that defiance, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats for God, that loves God. He fills you with his Holy Spirit and suddenly you find my desires are changing. 
Do I still blow it? Yes. Do I still fall on my face? Of course. Do I still struggle with certain things? Absolutely. But along the way, my disposition has changed and I no longer want to defy God. I actually don't want to sin anymore. John says, there you go. Then you know you've been born again. Amazing. Can I suggest something, River West? Sometimes I don't think we stop enough to acknowledge how precious this is. What a gift God has given us, his Holy Spirit. Think about it. The gift of the Holy Spirit who abides in you in this moment is there's nothing God could give you that is more priceless than that. And that's how much he loves you. So let me make this practical. I'm gonna give you three things that you could do. I wrote these down and put them on the screen. So if you wanna write these down and take them away, I want you, I want this to be helpful in your daily Christian life. And if you don't have a pen, you're just gonna take out your cell phone at the end anyway and take a picture of it. So just do that, it's okay. We're media friendly here, all right? Here is practical suggestion number one. Don't ignore anymore that tiny little tug on your heart that we like to call your conscience. Don't ignore that anymore, okay? You know what I mean by that? It's that moment when you have a decision to make and there's this tiny little tug and you think, hmm, I wonder if this is the best thing to do right now. And see, John would say, it's not your conscience, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the seed of the life-giving seed of God in you working in your heart and he's nudging you and he's striking your internal compass to get you back to true north. And John would say, stop ignoring that, that's good. In fact, learn how to listen to that little tug. Here's number two. It goes back to what we read earlier. Don't neglect the life-giving practice of confession in your relationship with God and in your community. So when John said, when, when you sin, confess your sins to God, he's faithful and just. John would say, you know what the most precious thing we have in our community is the ability to be honest with God and to be honest with one another. You get caught up in something, you're carrying some shame or brokenness, go straight to God and confess it. And then John would even suggest, find a brother in Christ, find a sister in Christ and say, can I just, I need to share something that's going on. You know, one of the most beautiful things that happens in the body of Christ, and it happens here all the time, is that someone comes and they confess something that's happening to a friend or in a community group. And then the people around them say, Jesus loves you. And Jesus died for that sin and you're totally forgiven. And there's this beautiful gospel interchange. I love that. Will you practice that in your Christian life this week? And then here's the third one. Don't try to fight sin anymore by focusing on sin. You can't fight sin by focusing on sin. There's no power there. If you try to fight sin in your life through your own power, through your own focus, you will surely fail. John would say, how do you fight sin? You fight sin by beholding God. See what kind of love God has given us. And you just look up at God and you, and then what, what happens is, is God fills your vision with his grace and with his mercy and with the gift of his Holy Spirit, a new affection comes in and that new affection has the power to push out the old one. 
And John would say, that's how you fight sin, with greater affections for Christ and for his word. You know, that's what we're going to do here in just a minute this morning. I'm going to pray about that right now, and then we're going to take communion. Will you bow your heads with me? Let's thank the Lord. We do thank you, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, for the truth of it, for the beauty of it, even even at times the intensity of it. Thank you for speaking clearly, for shooting straight with us, Lord, about sin and righteousness, about who we really are in Christ, our new birth, our identity as your children. We need it all, Lord. We need to understand it. We need to embrace it. So thank you, Father. Capture our hearts with the truth. This morning as we go to the table and we get the bread and we get the cup, we pray that we would take in the full wonder of your love, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.